Thank you, Doug. Good morning, Community Grace. Good morning, friends online. We can't hear you coming. <laughs> but we rejoice to be together this morning, wherever our bodies are. Coronavirus, COVID-19, these are terms on everyone's minds. They weren't just weeks ago. And this has exploded rapidly. I almost mentioned it in my sermon last week, but I didn't. This week, it shuts the whole world down. And here we are, and I'm going to open with my comments today to address this. Uh, not that you need a whole lot more information about it, but I do want to share from a biblical perspective some things. There's no shortage of information online. There's also misinformation, and we want to be discerning. So the first thing is God provides wisdom when we ask for it. Some basics about the coronavirus. It is a virus. It's contagious. It's spread through respiratory droplets that we give off all the time. Coughing, sneezing, runny noses. These virus, this virus lives on surfaces for 4 to 40 hours. And so it is serious. The coronavirus is new to the human population, jumping into people late last year from, one of the, from some kind of animal, in an animal market in the province of Wuhan, China. It is related to the viruses that cause colds, act, acts a lot like them in many ways. It's easy to transmit. What's different is that nobody has been exposed to this before, meaning that nobody has any immunity to it. That's what makes it different. So we don't know if this will die out in a few weeks or be longer lasting. Things continue to change rapidly, and we'll all be watching for those changes. My comments today are in three parts before I get to the text that God has led us to today. First is steps our church is taking, second is God's view, and third is our church's response, our church's ministry. So steps are, how is Community Grace responding? Well, of course, we have posted updates on our website and Facebook, and we'll continue to do that, so watch out for those. Uh, things are changing rapidly. Please pray for us as we make decisions about what to do and steps to take that we'll talk about as we go today. We had a cleaning party on Friday. This, this facility is cleaner than it's been in a long time. Thank you for everybody who came for that. We'll continue that. We're on Facebook Live today. Hi again. And uh, we'll consider our future use of that technology that God's blessed us with. We encourage you to join the effort to flatten the curve. I know you've probably heard these words, flatten the curve. Understand collectively what the world is trying to do to fight this virus. You've probably seen this chart. It just lays it out quickly. Uh, the, the drastic response is not because the whole world thinks we're going to die in mass you know, right away. No, it's to flatten the curve of the drain on our medical facilities. And that is important to do. And so the, the effective way to do that is called social distancing. The goal of limiting interaction to flatten the curve. So the demand on our medical facilities, medicine, treatment can keep up with the demand. And to buy time while treatments and immunity is developed. So I just want to make sure that we're clear on that, exactly what's going on, that we all have a similar understanding. And as we all learn more, our understanding will grow, I'm sure. My second set of comments is, what is God's view or our view about God? God is sovereign, and he has demonstrated that he is all-powerful in his creative work, in his blessings, in his judgments, and in his gospel, his ability to save all of our sins. And yet humans all too easily slide into the fear of situations that we face more than a healthy fear of God and trust in God. I'm guilty of that too. We naturally slide into that. So this is a call to trust God. Since the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, Humans have done the same thing we see in the Tower of Babel, tried to amass power and centralize power so that we don't need God. Inside the human heart is the desire to have autonomy from God. On a small scale in our own lives, massive scale in the structures that we build, the events of the last few weeks have demonstrated that man's systems, which we think will take care of us, which we put our trust in, Things like our education and our medicine and our health care and our food supply and our economy. The last few weeks have taught us that these systems, which we put our trust in, are so very fragile. 
It's overwhelming how fragile our systems are. All it took was a tiny virus to shut everything down, to cripple our economy, and to run out of toilet paper. <laughs> the world is now given a massive opportunity to see God at work. And we're paying attention. We're going to see God as real, as powerful, and as relevant to every part of our lives. Which brings me to my third area of comments, and that's our response as a church in ministry. We have an opportunity ahead. A certain percentage of this world will contract the coronavirus in the end. It may be much less or much more than a host of other diseases and sicknesses that humans die from. But one truth that cannot be overlooked is that the sin virus, the sin virus has infected and will kill 100% of human beings. That's the enemy that we need to be the most aware of, cognizant of, active against. There is one antidote given to that, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we who have believed in Jesus carry with us everywhere we go. We're made alive in Christ, as Colossians will teach us today. Jesus Christ gives us life, spiritual life now, eternal life ahead. So we have a ministry, we have a mission to proclaim Jesus. Remember, last week we had this verse, we pro, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may make Christ look beautiful in our sacrificial lives. That's what's ahead. Christ's church is going to need to respond in so many ways. And I, you know, one thing I've enjoyed is the, is the steady stream of very edifying and encouraging posts and emails and articles, things shared, that really pump us up and drive us to have a stronger faith in God and, and give us ideas of how we can respond in Christ-like ways. So keep those coming. Okay, be inspired by those. There's so many good ideas of how the church can be the church in the world. Don't just read those and think those are nice ideas for someone else. Okay, use those to act on. Here's a few other things. In this time of containment, don't complain about being bored. There is much work to do. Don't be distracted by binge-watching spiritually dead TV shows. Be in the Word of God. Here's a goal. Try to finish the Word of God by the time this is all done. That's a good goal. Be in the Word. Pray a lot. One thing I saw was a challenge was every time you're washing your hands for 20 seconds, pray and change the world. Our prayers change the world. It's a good reminder to pray every time we wash our hands. I've read beautiful testimonies already shared about how God is working around the world through this, and we're going to see more and more as we're faithful. If cases grow in our community, we will serve those people like we would serve and help in any emergency response, in any community emergency. So be ready for that. Christian history is filled with this, brothers and sisters. It's always been the Christians who respond the most bravely and sacrificially at cost to their own finances, cost to their own health. Are we willing to do that if that's what's called us? I hope that we are. I hope that we haven't gotten so complacent and idolized our comfort and our wealth so much. Let's not be soft or careless or distracted or scared people because Christ is greater than all. He is the God that we follow and that we worship. So finally, a role that we have as Christ followers, which we'll get it further in today as our text, as we open our text, Colossians 2, 8 through 15. Here's another role that we're going to focus on now for the rest of the morning that we have. This is where the Holy Spirit has sovereignly led us in our study this morning. This was already planned in eternity past, that we would be in this text. And that role that we have in this world as Christians, as Christ followers, is to fight strong against deceptions. So open your Bibles with me, please, to Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. You guys have uh, bulletins if you need sermon notes and a pen. They have Bibles, English and Spanish. Just raise your hand and they'll give you what you need.
Colossians chapter 2. We entered chapter 2 last week, which we said was the heart of the book of Colossians. Because so many people still do not know Christ and stand under his righteous judgment. Chapter 2 addresses this very thing. Chapter 2 is a unit that we're breaking into three parts. Last week was part 1. It was titled, Walk Strong in Truth. And the Apostle Paul grounded us in the strength that we have in God's truth. We talked about the existence of many deceiving, plausible arguments, things that entice us to believe something other than the Word of God. And today and next week make a two-part set on the next topic, which is fight strong against the deceptions. Walk strong in truth, fight strong against deceptions. Part one today. Colossians has been called the most contemporary and relevant book of Scripture because of the things we're getting into these next two weeks. Now, I don't like that comparison because all of the Bible is living and active and powerful in our lives. But people say it, so I figured I'd repeat it. The most relevant and contemporary book of Scripture. This connects to us, and we need this today. Paul specifically confronts six views that are leading people away from Christ. They're all still very prevalent today. I'll just list them here. Legalism derails Christian faith all the time. Worship of angels, more common than you think. Humanism, it's the dominant religion of America. Self-hatred. Empty philosophies according to the principles of the world. And that's one we'll talk about today. And finally, that Jesus was not fully God and his death and resurrection are not sufficient. We talked about that last week. And remember the statement that we said last week, in salvation, Jesus plus anything ruins everything. Jesus is sufficient. Brothers and sisters, there's a lot of deception in the world that distracts and destroys lives and leads people to hell. And it's urgent that we fight strong against it to walk in the truth stronger and stronger in our lives and to fight against the deceptions stronger and stronger. Jesus calls his people the salt of the earth. Christian doctrine and Christian practice when we sacrificially serve our fellow human has this, has this preserving effect on the world. That's what Jesus means by the salt of the earth. So we can't retreat from talking about these things because if we retreat and don't talk about them, then we're like salt that has lost its saltiness. And what does Jesus say that salt that's lost its flavor is good for? To be thrown out into the street and trampled on. Do you want that to characterize your life? I don't either. I don't want to be that. So here's why it's so important for us to apply what we hear today. Here's what we need to do. Verses 8 through 15 give us two major ways that we can fight strong against deceptions. Now my prayer today is that this coronavirus situation will open doors for us to talk deeper and larger than about the problems that are in the world, even larger than the coronavirus, and much deeper than we've had in a very long time. So two ways that we can fight strong against deceptions. The first, fight strong against being captured. Fight strong against being captured. Verse 8, examine that with me. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Let's look deeper into that verse. Captive. See to it that no one takes you captive. No one takes you captive. That word captive is prisoner of war. POW of a spiritual war. Do we want anyone to be a part of that? We don't. And it grieves any pastor or leader or parent or friend to see someone, a brother and sister in Christ, duped into thinking that they have found some truth, which in reality is a lie that has made them captive to a false teaching. We don't want that on anybody, and it breaks our hearts when it happens. So fight strong against this. Against what exactly? Paul defines what this is. Next, 
He says, against philosophy and empty deceit. Okay, philosophy means love of wisdom. Applied here, it's, these are theories about God and the world and the meaning of life. That's what we're talking about. Theories about God, the world, and the meaning of life. And first of all, let me say there are plenty good philosophers out there. There's nothing wrong with philosophy as long as the good, what the good philosophers do is they think biblically, they love God, and they want to advance his truth. And that's where philosophy, and every generation needs philosophers to carry on our generation in those things. But Paul confronts the mindset and the worldview of all philosophies in the world which are not centered on Christ. This is what he's going to do here. False teachers always consider their philosophies as the wisest and the best. But Paul calls them out as what they are, empty deceit. They sound good, they sound enticing, but they deceive and capture the minds of the people who buy into them. That's what's going on. There's no value in them. No matter how deeply and profoundly religious they sound, they're empty. It's like going to a pharmacy for the medicine that you need to fight the disease that you have, and the pharmacist gives you a placebo. It's empty. It's not going to do anything for you of real substance, of real life change, of real eternity. And we should fight against these, Paul is saying, like we would fight against the unethical pharmacist who is giving placebo pills to people who need the medicine to heal them. And we're going to fight that pharmacist, right? Fight to stop him. Same thing. Paul then gives two sources for these empty philosophies, and knowing where they come from helps us watch out for them. The first is human tradition, he says. Listen, this is important. Just because people say something a lot doesn't mean it's true. And just because this is something you've been taught over generation after generation, think of your traditions. I love traditions. Many of them are really, really good and fun and and constructive, but many of them bury kids that grow up into adults in whatever cloud of error. Just because it's been passed on by your tradition of your family or group, if it's not true, it's not true. Those which oppose God's word needs to be exposed so we can stop them. The deceptions need to be broken. And then Paul says, the elemental spirits of the world... These have always been around, and they're around today. And some of the organized religions or movements, uh, Paul's talking about the spiritual realm here, things and things that we tap into the spiritual world with, things like the New Age movement, or Wicca, witchcraft, Druidism, shamanism. There's a large number of blended alternative religions. Those are the things, the movements that have gotten big enough to have a name on them. In America, it's humanism, consumerism, and materialism. All the isms is a great study, and it's important for us to to be aware of those. So those are the elemental spirits of the world. But really, the basic principles of paganism, you know, you and I aren't going to say, well, I'm kind of really interested in Druidism. I might start converting to that. We may not do that. But the basic principles of paganism are more subtle and sound more enticing to us. There are two very broad, basic principles of paganism. One is that the universe is sacred. The universe is sacred. Not the creator who created the universe and everything in it. The Bible talks a lot about this, people who worship the creation rather than the creator. And none of us is immune to doing that. We put our trust in systems of the world. We find our joy the creation, never giving glory to the creator, never turning to him. We panic and we don't pray. On and on and on. Catch yourself. So that's the first basic principle of paganism. The universe is sacred. The second is personal freedom to choose your own deity or God. And make no mistake, you and I do this too. Human nature is bent on worshiping itself. We want to be our God. Or we place other things or people onto a pedestal ahead of God. Or we just want the freedom, again, the autonomy from God to choose our own deity, our own God. 
So I just want you to connect with this and realize that, that even Christians fall into this because we do still have a, a human nature. But Christ is walking with us to grow through that. So Paul is connecting everything in this category. Look at that last part of verse 8. That is not according to Christ. He's connecting that with demonic power. Demonic power. Are you wondering how much of this exists in our lives today, in America today? How much of this really exists? <laughs> Just read the comments on any major website under any type of religious article, right? Those of you who are over 25 remember a time when not every article had a bunch of comments under it, right? But now, I mean, it's just, it's explosive. And you read through these comments, and I can't even let my kids see the comments on, some, on, on anything, really. Um, they're vulgar and such, filled with just a variety of, of things. So this, this is all over the world. This is all among us. Be very, very aware of this. In fact, we have a member of our church who shared with me her calling to engage with the gospel in this very forum on YouTube in the comment section. Now, this is a calling that she's received from God, and listen to what she shared with me, and she gave me permission to share this with you all. Proclaiming Jesus, warning and teaching, and this is how she's been called to do it. She writes, I've been sharing my faith with people on YouTube, and I have come across religions and views and teachings that I have never heard before. Some of those conversations really stretch my faith. I have talked with two different Catholics, a demon-possessed woman named Karen who believes she's a messenger. She could go into a trance at will and had encounters with demons, but she didn't realize they were demons. I've talked to several Muslims. I've talked to people who are very legalistic in their walk with God and believe that we have to follow the Old Testament law. A man who I recently talked to named Greg believes he no longer sins and that we have to follow the law to keep our salvation. I talked to a couple different people who don't believe Jesus is God. They believe everything else about Jesus, including the virgin birth, that Jesus died for us and paid our sin in full, but don't believe that he is God the Son. That just blows my mind. And I've had other unusual conversations. I have never been to college to study the Bible, but God is using me to share with people. I had a Jesus dream a number of years ago, and it simply didn't make any sense to me until after I started sharing my faith on YouTube. Every member in our church body should be able to defend the truth with love and grace and be a light to those who don't believe like we do. Amen? Amen. That's great. Now, that might not be your calling, but what is your calling? Where are you going to bring truth and stand against the deceptions? So just seeking anything spiritual, which is what Americans are pros to do, I just want to be spiritual. Just seeking anything that's spiritual and kind of latching your life onto that without any real basis of absolute reason or authority, that's as foolish as just trusting all people. It's like, here's my baby. Go up to any person. Here, you take her for the day. Right? That's foolish. That's foolish. But God has given us a way to test, to see if philosophies and ideas are biblical and grounded in the truth. Here's the test. And we need to ask this of any belief system, of value, of philosophy, anything that sounds intriguing, any type of spirituality. Ask these questions. What does it say about Jesus? How does it point to Jesus? Who does it reveal Jesus to be? Does this increase the love for Jesus, the obedience to Jesus, the appreciation of Jesus. Does this cause me to follow Jesus more closely? If it does not do any of these things, then Paul says, in fact, it is demonic. These philosophies are enticing and they're fun for a season and they seem to provide a sense of belonging or of meaning, but they cannot save and they fall far short of Christ who is greater than all. And we can find all of that meaning and fulfillment in everything we're seeking in Christ. So what should we do? We should remember those questions. We should 
arm ourselves, prepare ourselves. People take self-defense classes, right, to be able to fight in case they're attacked. I'm all for that. It's the same kind of thing in the spiritual warfare. People share information on, uh, like on Facebook and just in, in friendships. Here's one, just one of millions of examples. Have you ever heard about the $100 bill trick? This has been on the news recently. I guess some human traffickers, sex traffickers, uh, will lure young women into, in a dark parking lot uh, and kidnap them by placing a $100 bill on their windshield when they go to get it and are distracted. That's when they're kidnapped. I, who knows how often that's happened. It made the news, and it's been passed around. And I tell you, as a dad of six daughters, I'm happy for this information. And I want people to know these kinds of tricks that enemies are using out there. It's the same thing with the spiritual realm, with deceptions and philosophies of empty deceit that are trying to steal your hearts and affections and minds away from Christ. We need to fight strong against being captured by any of these, Paul says. And I agree, and I'm with him on that. So with that test, Paul moves on. Now, we spent a lot of time in verse 8. The rest of our passage today, verses 9 through 15, covers the second point, the second way that we fight strong against deceptions, and that is to fight strong claiming who you are. First, fight strong against being captured. Now, fight strong claiming who you are. Christ alone has all power. And he has made us so much in him. Our identity, if you're a believer in Jesus, is in him. Our identity is in him. And this can take a while to grasp and to accept. And there will never be so much joy as when you do. So let's talk about this. We'll look at five things that Christ has made us in him in verses 9 through 15 here we go first filled in him we are filled in him paul writes in verses 9 and 10 for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority the first statement, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This is the third time Paul has said that. Now he's going to say that eight times in the letter. He wants us to know that Jesus, the man, is God. He's God. He's the fullness of God. This is who we follow and who we worship. That's a very strong statement. That the God who became man entered our history. He took on, he was a spiritual form. He took on a physical form. He became our sacrifice. He has all power and all authority. Christ is greater than all. Now, knowing that, once again, everything you need is found in Jesus. And he is in you, and he has filled you. And brothers and sisters, I just want to encourage you to rest so confident and assured in that, that nothing in the world can scare you. That's all we need to know. We don't need more of Jesus. He's filled us. He just needs more of you committing to him and living for him and growing in him. That's the first thing we are. The second thing we are we, that we can claim in our fight against being deceived and captured is we are in covenant relationship with him. Verse 11, Paul goes on. He says, in him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, if you're not familiar with the Old Covenant of the Old Testament and how circumcision was a mark of that covenant relationship, then you have no idea what that verse means. And that's totally fine. You can look at that all day and be like, huh? Let's understand what it means. This is a reference to the Old Testament because one of the major deceptions that the Colossians were facing was various forms of Judaizers, Judaism, the Old Testament religion, that we're forcing those practices into Christianity. And as our testimony from the YouTube conversations showed, this is still going on. 
Okay, so they're forcing that Christians still need to be circumcised. If you don't know what that is, ask your mom next to you. <laughs> so they're forcing this on Christians that we still need to be circumcised. We still need to pray through priests. We can't pray to God on our own. We still have to observe certain feasts, certain fasts, holy days, and other religious rituals in order to be saved, in order to know God, in order to please God. And of course, that's not true. So here's what Paul says in verse 11. The Old Testament was like the elementary school phase of God's total redemptive plan. Yeah, that's like the elementary school. And everything that it taught, and all those rituals, and all those feasts, and we'll talk about it more next week. He gets into it more. All of those, we discover, are to point to Christ who fulfilled them all. And now we live over here where we understand this. This was the mystery of the gospel that we talked about in chapter 1. Christ came and fulfilled all of it, but false teachers insisted that Christians had to be circumcised. But circumcision of the flesh, I'll just say cutting off foreskin of baby boys when they're eight days old was the mark of the covenant of the relationship between God and Israel. Now we're in a covenant relationship with God through Christ. You know where else Paul teaches about this? Is in Galatians. And I know one of our communities of training is working through Galatians right now. Maybe you've come across this. This was really capturing Christians, and they were really struggling with this. Because this was the identity of, of relationship with God for so long. They were really struggling with this. So Paul fights it big time in Galatians. He says, you who are teaching that to the churches, to my precious brothers and sisters, I wish you would just go ahead and emasculate yourselves. You realize what that means? He's saying, why don't you go the whole way and emasculate yourselves? Why not, if you're not holy unless you do this, why not just cut it all off and be the holiest of all of us? I mean, that's really strong language from the Apostle Paul. He's fighting that deception that's leading people astray. Are we going to be so bold and so passionate to fight those things ourselves? So know that God is saying, I have circumcised your heart. I own, I own you internally, not through external rituals. What I've done is not an external marking. It's an internal transformation of who you are. Filled in me, I in you. So claim that. Claim that Jesus has made you and serve him in the world well. Okay, so we're in covenant relation. We're, we're filled in him. We're in covenant relationship with him. Paul moves on to baptism, which is one of the church's two ordinances, baptism and communion. Baptism and communion. These are practices that we still continue today. Let's see what Paul says here. The third thing Christ made us that we can claim totally confident in him, is that we have been buried and raised with life, uh, with him to life. So Christ fulfills all the religious rituals, but he did leave his church with two ordinances to observe for all time, baptism and communion. But here's the thing, he gave them to us for identification with him and for worship not to earn our salvation. Got it? Not to earn justifying, saving faith through observing them. They're for our identity. A lot of churches teach that. They are for our identification and worship of Christ. Here's, here's the difference between the two. In baptism, I identify my death with Christ. And at communion, I acknowledge Christ's death for me. And that's why Jesus gave us these two great ordinances, practices of the church. Let's look at the verses here, verses 12 and to 13a, what Paul says about them that we can claim for our lives. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive, God made alive, together with him. Here's what he's saying. In God's sight, when Jesus died, you died. When Jesus was buried, you were buried. And when Jesus arose, you arose. We're identifying 
with Jesus through baptism. We don't just become closer to God through religious practices. We have become alive in Christ. You're not spiritually alive at all until you trust Jesus as your Savior and He gives you spiritual life. You become alive for the first time. Oh, what a Savior, what a Lord, what a friend we have in Jesus. We have a chance at the end of our service today to observe the bread and the cup, which becomes one of, a Christian, one of the Christian's favorite thing to, to do, one of the favorite ways to worship. And I look forward to that in just a, a little while. But I will add a, a wonderful thing about the Grace Brethren denomination is that every three months, once a quarter, on a Sunday night, we observe threefold communion, which is like the full meal deal, literally the full meal deal of Christian communion. So our next one is on May 17th, and I just want to encourage everyone to be there. If it's your first one, we'll rejoice. It's deep and rich. Now are you ready for the crescendo, what we've been building up to this whole time? The peak, the pinnacle of our text today. This is how Paul concludes in the fourth and fifth thing, points D and E, that we can claim for our fight against deception. D is we are forgiven 100% by Christ's sacrifice. Pick up in the text, halfway through verse 13 and verse 14. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus, because he was a man, could be the fitting sacrifice for all humans, or for humans. And Jesus, because he was God, was infinitely powerful enough to be the sacrifice for all human sin. He took all our sins, all our struggles, everything, and the punishment and the guilt that we deserve from them. He took them all, and the punishment that we deserve from them, all of it, 100%. And nailed it to the cross. The legal demands of our sin, the wages of sin is death, says the Bible. Eternal hell, death, separation from God. But because he was God, he could take it all on himself on the cross, and he did. The people who say Christ's sacrifice wasn't enough, that's a deception. All of you who are truly Christians and who still battle with the shame and the guilt of your past life or even your current struggles now, the shame and the guilt and the worthlessness and the self-hatred or depression or sadness, whatever it is, no, Paul fights this. That is wrong. We are 100% forgiven by Christ's sacrifice. You be assured of that, brothers and sisters. And again, when you grasp that and accept it, Jesus has given it to you. When you accept that, you've never been filled with so much joy in your life. This is a message that we want to give to the people we love, the people that we know, the people that we don't know, and even our enemies, because we're following Jesus. And that's not all, Paul says. Our final verse, verse 15, one last thing, the fifth thing that we are in Christ, that we can claim, brothers and sisters, we are victorious with our mighty king. We are victorious. Verse 15, he, well, this is the crescendo, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Historians and scholars help us understand what Paul is visualizing here. And, and I want to take your mind to this. Here's what to visualize. Paul is writing in in the Roman Empire, in the, the peak of the Roman Empire. And here's what he's visualizing. A Roman battle unit approaching a city, or approaching the city after a successful battle. Okay, and they enter the city to a great procession, crowds lining the street. It's like the Indiana Colts when they won the Super Bowl. What happened in Indianapolis? The big parade, and everybody's lining the streets. 
The same kind of thing happens here. So the, the army's coming back and the crowds are cheering. Great victory. And here's where it's different from what the Indianapolis Colts did. Captives were chained in shame to the general's chariot to witness his glory before being taken off to execution. Okay? That's different than NFL football, right? We're glad for that. But this was the reality that Paul is, is bringing up here as he visualizes Jesus in the spiritual war. Like physical warfare, the Christian life is a fight. This battle is a spiritual war. Ephesians 6 to 12, I want to make a couple things clear. Ephesians 6 12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We don't fight other people with our hands and fists, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's who we battle. So our enemies, people who are trying to kill us or make fun of us or whatever, please understand they're not enemies. They're victims of the enemy. Know who you're battling here. And Christ, Paul says in verse 15, is the victorious, mighty king, who in the same way that a Roman king or a Roman general triumphed, Christ has triumphed over Satan and his forces. And although they still roam the world until the appointed time, they are chained to Christ's chariot and destined for the lake of fire that he prepared for them. The ultimate victory is secured. Christ is the victorious, mighty king. And our ultimate victory is secured in Christ too. No one can take away our salvation. And we need to live like it on the mission that he has given us now. So how should that make our lives look? How should our lives look knowing all these things that Christ has done in us that we can claim that we have this battle to fight in our lives every day, all kinds of ways? How should it make our lives look? Should we be apathetic to it? Should we only think about it on Sundays? Should we be weak? Should we be soft? Should we not care? Should we be known as the nice guy that doesn't stand on any principles or stand on anything in his life. Men, women, children who, who have been given all this in Christ. Our response to Christ's ultimate victory is to be bold in truth and love and bold in fighting against the deceptions that lead so many people to destruction. Bold like the apostles in Acts who preached in the public square and got arrested and beaten and then did it again. All right, now some of you are ready for that. You're ready to be flogged today as you needed to be and thrown in prison. And that's great. But you know what? Maybe most of us, not everybody is quite there yet. It's, it takes steps. Okay, life is a journey. This is a walk with Christ. We might be a few steps away from just willingly go and, and, and get thrown in jail, lose our jobs, and, and beaten in the streets. But let's talk about what our next steps today, right now, can be. These are next steps that everybody can take. And I'm going to start that right You know, now you can change a lot with just 46, 46 characters. characters. For example, you can change where you live. Or you can change your relationship status. Fellas, we do not recommend proposing via text message. You could also change your career, change your vehicle, or you could change just about anything. But maybe this week, you could use 46 characters to change someone's life. Think about it. Pray about it and use your 46 characters for a change. Simple steps that if we will be faithful and take can change lives. Who's ready to do that this week? Who's ready to take some simple steps going into the kind of week that awaits us? I have three next steps for you to write down and 
I'm going to encourage you to commit to today. Number one is invest and invite the world. If you are sitting on the middle of the aisle, that's all of you from James on back, Allie on back. If you're sitting in the middle, you'll see these two cards. You probably already moved them out of your seat. These are called invest and invite cards. I've been doing this for 15 years, and it's one of the most powerful things that I've ever been a part of. When we pray together as a church, pray for the people that God's put in our lives, here's how they work. Would you please pass them down the row, and everybody take one big card and one small card. And as you're passing them down the row, everybody take one, grab your pen, and you can start filling this out. Here's how they work. This is what it says. Invest and invite. These are the people God has placed in my life who need to know and follow Christ. I will pray for them daily and invite them to attend Easter, an Easter service with me. You can think of one or two, or some of you might jam in eight or ten names in there. Think of your neighbors, your people at work, your family, who you want this church to pray for, because we're going to lift these names up many times from now until Easter. And then you write those same names and print your name. Please don't write cursive or your signature. We want to be able to read it. Print your name, place the big card in the offering, okay? And then on the small card, write the exact same information, and you keep that on your mirror, on your steering wheel, wherever we'll remind you over the next four weeks until Easter to pray. All right, so as you're working on that, think, who has God placed in my life that I want to pray for? Be prepared to put the big cards in the offering. Now, you've seen on the Easter schedule a concert of prayer scheduled for March 29th. That's in two weeks. We may or may not actually have that, depending on what happens with the gathering thing. But its design is to, right after the service on the 29th, go and eat a meal together, come back in here, and huddle up and pray over all these cards by name. It's the most beautiful concert of prayer thing to be a part of. We'll figure out what it's going to look like. That doesn't stop our prayers, though. Also are the invitation cards that we passed out last week, and I gave the 10-pack challenge last week to pass out all 10 of those by this week. I'm not going to ask who did it, because even if you just even thought about it or passed out one, you know, that's progress. But our family definitely did it. We got all, all together, about 13 or 14 cards, and we rejoiced. And last night, I was putting the kids to bed, and we were just praising God that 13 or 14 people this last week, because of this, because of this initiative, um, had a touch, a Jesus moment, a Jesus touch. And who knows what the Holy Spirit's going to do through that. Now, I did talk to Jonathan Chappelle in the parking lot a few days ago. He had already given all his 10 away. That's not surprising. God's got him on fire, and I love it. Um, if you want to share some stories, send some emails, message us. Uh, we'll share them on Facebook, whatever. That's pretty fun stuff. Keep that up. Although, <laughs> because of the coronavirus, we're not sure what the meeting is going to be like. So on your invitation cards, you might circle the, the worship time and say, um, it's on Facebook Live also. Okay, People actually like to know that, and they might tune in next week. Communication cards is also on the bullet list. These are important cards. Mine fell down on the floor a long time ago. This is what's in your bulletin. Please share your prayer request. Share your response to the service, any needs that you have, anything you want to be involved in in ministry. Uh, it's important to be in communication as a church family, and that's how we do it. The e-prayer team, man, that was great. We have a really good list of names. If you want to be added to the e-prayer team, just write e-prayer team on that in your email address. And we send all the prayer requests that are on these cards. We'll do that each week. And that is powerful for a church. All of Christian history and, and the Word of God has proven that. A church who prays, God does mighty things through. And we have a lot of fun. All right, next step number two is come to life in Christ today. As we've been talking, you might be saying, man, I, it's starting to make sense who Jesus is, and I want to give you my life. God, through your Son and His sacrifice, Jesus Christ. If you want to do that today, you can write that on your communication card as well. Check that box. Come and talk to us. Give Him your heart today as we close, as we sing, as, as you observe what's happening with communion. And then third is live like Christ would live right now. 
follow Christ, live like he would live in this day and age, this week, in your shoes. That includes a few things. Fighting deceptions. If you hear something that sounds off from the Bible, reject it. Keep Christ first. Try to draw those people into a conversation about truth. Second is be, con- be confident. Be confident. Now is the time to walk away from this building today smiling or this computer today smiling like you've never had before because we're confident in the five things that Christ has given us in him. Review those. And then serve like him. Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man came not to be served. Who's God? And he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And we might have the greatest opportunity for this that American Christians have seen in two generations. That might be ahead. As shortages continue, our economy continues to go wonky, this is where the church must and can step up to be salt and light. Share those stories, what you're doing, your testimonies, the needs and the opportunities that we have out there. Let's take this on. And it will be costly. Celebrate in that. Cost our time, our attention, our health, our bank accounts. But serving and giving sacrificially will be glorious. That's how God works through it. But this is the way we should always live, isn't it? So let's start today, growing in that direction, giving Jesus our entire lives. Let's pray, and then we'll transition to the bread and cup. Lord, I thank you for the uh, opportunity to meet today, the opportunity to have some extra friends with us online, taking a little bit of extra time to address the situation and to look at a text that's just so powerful. I pray your Holy Spirit just unleashes on all of our lives. Teach us how you're going to use us differently or more as a result of our time today. We pray. We pray in Jesus' powerful name all these things. Amen. Okay.